you'd please stand for the reading. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're considering the book of Acts. And one of the questions we're asking as we go through the book of Acts is, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God? We recently finished considering the book of Amos, which showed us what it meant to not be the faithful people of God. And so now we come to a place in which God's community, God's faithful people are reconstituted with the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we look at them as an example, we learn what does it really look like to pursue and to embody Uh, a community that follows Jesus Christ. And what will come upon this morning is that Luke emphasizes a reality of that community has to be a radical and intentional sharing. Radical and intentional sharing. To the degree that it probably made them uncomfortable and certainly would make us uncomfortable. Uh, But to, before we get into the text and appreciating that notion of sharing, I want to set us up to appreciate at the end what that sharing might offer to us, might bring us, might deliver us from in terms of cultural frustrations. There are certainly some symptoms or aspects of culture right now that are frustrating to people around us and they're frustrating to us as we experience them. One would certainly be loneliness. If you look in any direction, whether it be sociologically or psychologically uh, to any public health study, the message seems to be, or conclusion seems to be the same, that loneliness is at an unprecedented high. More people feel lonely more often, if not all the time, than ever before. And of course, no, there's no shortage of people pointing out that this is a great irony. It's a great irony because we're never, we have never been more connected, at least in terms of the ability, the basic ability to communicate. Social media, email, texting, right? You can communicate in real time with people on the other side of the planet. It's astonishing. And yet, paradoxically, even in the midst of this ability to communicate, we feel increasingly isolated. <coughs> Joe Capios, or, pardon me, Cassiapo wrote, uh, Loneliness, human nature, and the need for social connection. And he points out that loneliness is bad for your mental health. 
well-being goes down, depressive symptoms go up, your likelihood of developing mental and affective disorders increases. In fact, one of the ways in which loneliness is being processed now is realizing what a public health crisis this actually is. Public health organizations estimate that chronic loneliness or experiencing loneliness on a regular scale is worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This led just last week, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of England, appointed a new cabinet position, which is entitled the Prime Minister of Loneliness. Over nine million people in Britain feel uh, isolated and alone, and they're realizing the expense to public health that this is producing because it's so negative on people's health. Right? And we might discount it because it's England, but more often than not, England, in terms of their societal decisions to move in a direction away from God and embrace a, a worldview that is utterly secular and to allow that and to form culture, more often than not, we've followed exactly in their footsteps. It may not be that long before we have some cabinet position that is appointed to loneliness. Loneliness is one symptom of our cultural malaise. Another symptom would be materialism. I think materialism is most uh, or best measured in our willingness to go into debt for things that we don't need. And so the average debt that the American household carries today is $8,377, which amounts nationally to more than $1 trillion in debt. Uh, 6%, or that number went up 6% just in the last year, which puts us at the height of what it was, which was during the Great Recession not too many years ago. Now, to be fair, sometimes people get in very difficult financial situations and have to overextend themselves in order to handle that financial situation. That's not really what we're talking about. The vast majority of that number are people who are so obsessed with having a particular possession, they're willing to go into debt to obtain that. Or to compete. I know a number of people who dread Christmas every year because they know they will overextend themselves to buy gifts for their family members that compete with the, other fa the gifts that the other family members are going to be giving. Right? That's the kind of thing we're talking about, that my significance, my identity is so established by my house, my car, my yard, the gifts I'm able to give, the clothes I'm able to wear, that I'm willing to go into debt for that. That's materialism. A third malaise or symptom of uh, culture these days in terms of the decisions that we've made, I would describe with the word cacophony. Now, cacophony is simply the op opposite of symphony. You could go to the symphony and hear a number of musical instruments playing in the same key, and it's, a, it's beautiful. Right? It's a delight to the ear. It's something that you take joy in. Cacophony is when if you went and everyone was playing in a different key, and the dissonance of sound that would occur would be painful and incredibly unpleasant. And I think that most of us are experiencing some degree of cacophony in our lives. This is because we're, we're spread so very thin and the different things that demand our time and attention are not necessarily playing in the same key. I've got these commitments at work. I've got these commitments in my neighborhood. I've got these commitments for my kids' activities. I've got these commitments for my own social interests. I've got these commitments for my church. I've got these commitments for my social organization. I'm pulled in 10 different directions, right? and trying to give a little bit of myself to each of these various things, but they're really not after the same thing, and they certainly don't serve or orient themselves around the same, uh, the same Lord or the same King. And to the degree that they don't, right, it's the degree to which I will experience dissonance or cacophony in my life, and that is exhausting. 
It, uh, as Bilbo Baggins would put it, it feels like being too little butter spread over a piece of toast, being stretched too thin in that fashion. And I think uh, we have all experienced that to greater and lesser extents. So I want you to keep in mind these three symptoms of the commitments that we've made culturally. Loneliness, materialism, and what we'll call a cacophony or dissonance uh, within society. And as you keep those in mind, we come to our passage and we see that Peter, uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, which is verse 36. And Peter has just spent a substantial period of time explaining that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. Everything that has come before, right? And remember, you have to keep in mind that Jesus is something of a surprise. And Luke has to go out of his way because Jesus had to go out of his way to explain it to Luke how Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. And the people say, well, okay, this is a very interesting reading of the Old Testament, but uh, you're saying the Messiah died? And Peter says, yes, I'm saying the Messiah died, and I'm also saying that was always part of God's plan. You crucified him. You know, you may think that you pulled the trigger on that, but actually God has been orchestrating all this. It's part of his sovereign agenda, and you better be thankful because Jesus isn't in the tomb still. He's raised from the dead, and God raising him from the dead is, the, is his vindication. It's God saying, this man cannot be held by death because he did not have sin. And as a result of willingly going to death on behalf of the world, when he didn't have sin, you're rescued. And so he works through all of that heavy theological material and he gets to verse 36 and he says, this Jesus who is both Lord and Christ. And it's a huge statement. Uh, to say that Jesus is Lord is to assign him divinity. To say that he is Christ is to say that he is a Messiah or King, the very sent one of God that would redeem his people. Right? It's an astonishing statement. And, he, and it's followed up by, that, uh, by the amazing tension, by the amazing surprise in the story that this Jesus uh, who is Lord in Christ, yes, the one you crucified. In other words, God's great victory, the King has been crowned by virtue of his death and resurrection. This Jesus whom you crucified, you didn't, you didn't understand what was playing out. He is both Lord and Christ. So you come into verse 37, and you see that the people are cut to the heart. Uh, some translations will say cut to the quick. It's strong language. They're stunned. It's this notion of uh, what have we done? We didn't understand the identity of this person. We were all in favor of putting him to death. My goodness, what have we done? And that really is a great question. Um, after being cut to the heart, they then move on to an even better question, which is really the only fitting question, still in verse 37, which is, brothers, you know, after having been convicted, what have we done? What then shall we do? Right? To, to recognize that Jesus is Lord in Christ, there is really only one fitting question that comes after that recognition, which is, what then shall I do? If there is now God made flesh and made king, king vindicated in his resurrection, then all authority rests with him at the right hand of the Father, and I am his subject, and the only question that matters is, what then shall I do? It's the right question that they ask, and of course, Peter is uh, ready. Now, the way that this is going to be laid out by Luke, Luke is going to emphasize Peter's answer, which is focusing on how the individuals gathered should respond to the authority of Jesus. But then Luke is going to transition and offer a summary in which he says, this is what it meant for the community to respond to Jesus in faithfulness. 
So we're going to uh, examine first Peter's exhortation and how individuals should respond. And then secondly, Luke's summary in how the community responded to his words, uh, to this uh, exhortation. So if you look at verse 38, Peter is going to command them that they should repent and be baptized. You can look there with me. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? For someone coming to faith for the first time, you hear that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. He is Lord and Savior. And you must decide, is Jesus going to be worth more than everything else to me? If he is, then I need to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn in the opposite direction of which you are going and to head towards Christ. So you've got these 120 people gathered right, in this amazing setting at the birth of the church, or the church as we know it with the gift of the Spirit. And uh, Peter says, repent, and so they all have to decide, okay, are we really going to run after this person wholeheartedly? If we do, that means we're putting aside all of our false allegiances, we're putting aside everything that's distracted us, we're moving after him in obedience. And Peter says, that's great. Then you need to be marked out as his. You need to be baptized. Because this is becoming the covenantal sign of what it means to be part of his people. How do you know if you're in that group? You've been baptized. And this is the initial response of the people of God. Right? When you hear the gospel, you turn away, you repent, and you become baptized. Now some of you, some of you are, have been considering the claims of Jesus, and you've been weighing him, and you think he's pretty a pretty interesting teacher. Got to love those parables. They're pretty good always putting the religious leaders on edge, but you've not yet decided to repent. Right? You have not decided that Jesus is worth more than everything else. Right? There's great, there are a number of great parables that describe discovering um, the worth of Jesus or Jesus coming to you and revealing himself to you as you know, someone finding a great treasure in a field and then going and selling everything else in order to buy the field. That's perhaps the most perfect representation of repentance. Right? To, be, to be confronted with the risen Christ and to say, I'm willing to part with everything so that I may, I may acquire that one great treasure which surpasses all of my other treasure. Right? That's the notion of repentance. So you may be there. You may be thinking about Jesus, but you've not really repented and you've not turned away from things, other treasures that you have to say yes. I am holy in and trust myself to Jesus. And so if you're in that place, the invitation to you this morning is to, to repent, to move in that direction and take, take that step of acknowledging that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now, some of you have repented. You've acknowledged Jesus and Lord and Christ. You've been working out a life of obedience, but you find yourself in this place, well, I've never really thought about baptism. You know, it's out there somewhere. Uh, realize that baptism, right, Peter is exhorting that to be part of God's community, right, the first step of faithful obedience is to be baptized into that community. It is the sacrament in which we can see that our sins are washed away, that we are unified to the risen Christ, right, and we become part of his family. And so if you find yourself in a place where you have repented but have not moved forward with baptism, friends, it is time. There is no true obedience without being faithful to that very first sacrament that Christ gives us. Now, most of you are saying, well, that's fine. That's what you come, that's what you do when you come to faith. And I've come to faith and I've repented and I've been baptized. But it's also the same thing that you do every day once you're in the faith. 
There's not a day that you don't wake up and repent. And not a day in which you say, today, am I really going to see Jesus as the treasure in the field regarding which I'm willing to go and sell everything? Does he trump all other values and affections that you have? And it's every day that you say, how am I going to move forward in faithfulness and obedience, which in old church language would be called improving upon your baptism. It's this notion that, yes, I've been baptized into the body of Christ, but to continue in sanctification is to continue to invest in that marking out so that I am even more worthwhile as a result of my sanctification of being called that name, being called by the name of Christ or, or being identified with Christ's people. And so whether you're, whether you're considering the faith, whether you've turned to the faith but haven't been baptized, or whether you've turned to the faith and have been baptized, the call to you is essentially ongoing to repent and to either be baptized or to improve upon your baptism. Now, apparently, Peter gives many other exhortations that Luke doesn't have the time or the energy or the interest to include for us. If you look at verse 40, it says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Yet Luke includes one other exhortation before he moves on, which is, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What does that mean? Well, primarily it must mean that Peter is saying, Listen, some of you will respond and pursue repentance and baptism, and you will be part of God's people. And other people are rejecting this message and will turn against it. They will be the crooked generation. You say, okay, but he set up, Luke, in articulating what Peter has said, has set up almost this longing to say, yeah, but what does that really look like? When I get, I've repented, I've turned, I want to move in a new direction. I've been baptized. How do I improve upon this? How do I avoid just being swallowed again by the crooked generation, which is always the generation outside of God's people? in any generation. And Luke says, in essence, says, I'm so glad you asked. This is what we need to unpack. And he pivots, as you go into verse 42, to summarize what's been happening for the church as a body of believers. Right? He's first articulated, you, you 120, if you want to be serious about following Jesus, this is what you need to do. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 42, he says, you know, for those who did, this is what happened. This is what they looked like. And it should thus be what we aspire to look like. In uh, verse 42, it says that they were devoted. And again, it's a very strong word. It's almost uh, they were intensely devoted. They were highly committed. They invested themselves wholly into uh, the apostles' teaching and a fellowship. The apostles teaching into fellowship. Now I want to pause here for a moment because I think fellowship is, is a rather unhappy translation. Fellowship is uh, sometimes, let me back up. The Greek word here that is translated for you, for us, is fellowship in English. is koinonia. And koinonia refers actually to the activity of shared life what it actually looks like to engage life together in a real way. Fellowship is the result of that. And so fellowship is a highlight of what results from uh, the actual activity of koinonia, which is what Peter is about to unpack. 
And so a number of translations will say something like, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to shared life or communal life. And that's really a better, it gets much more closely to the heart of the idea, of course, which fellowship is a result. But it's a better translation because fellowship is such a mushy word. Right? We, for example, we'll talk about having fellowship at a party. Um, you know, we might even say we're having fellowship at the Super Bowl party. Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with getting together and spending time together. But if we think the fellowship that Peter is talking about here is the same as that kind of fellowship, we're grossly mistaken. It's not the same in any way, shape, or form. And so it gets cloudy because we throw that word around. What Peter's talking about is a communal life that's characterized by intentional sharing. And you can see that easily uh, by where he goes from where he started. And really everything after that word that's translated for you, fellowship, the expression of koinonia, everything under it is a, is a breaking out and unpacking of what it means for the community, the early church, to share life together. And so in verse 42, we see that they're sharing devotion together uh, through the breaking of bread, which is almost certainly a, a reference to the Lord's Supper, and then to, uh, to engaging prayers together. In verses 44 and 45, they share resources together. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this isn't, um, all right, this is the kind of passage where people start to get a little uncomfortable. So what does this mean for us? And, how do, and lots of questions start to arise. Right, if you were to just take this at carte blanche value and say, okay, let's go do this, suddenly, well, how much do you sell? What percentage? Is it graduated or is it a flat tax? Who gets to decide how it's redistributed? Who's it going to be redistributed to? Right, do we give the same amount to somebody who goes out and squanders it as to somebody who spends it wisely? What's the deciding criteria? And we're going we're gonna to see as we move forward, even in Acts, that this kind of idealized picture doesn't remain. But two, that lots of rules are going to be handed down, particularly when you see Paul writing in the church in Ephesus, of how money should be uh, not only collected, but how it should be exercised on behalf of those in need, that there are criteria that need to be observed. So this isn't, this isn't an instruction manual is what I'm trying to say. Luke is painting a picture for you as to what has happened in this little window of a small group of people who have rapidly grown from 120 to 3,000 and who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and they're not yet suffering any persecution. No one's bothering them. They're just marveling in the Spirit being poured out for the first time on all people in history and what results is an intense community, an intense sharing. And the challenge to us then is what would it mean to aspire to this kind of sharing? Not that we create a rule book, but what would it look like to have hearts that were generous like this? Now, we'll come to that in a little bit, but let's continue to observe the sharing that's going on, not only of resources, but of worship. In verse 46, and day by day attending the temple, right, which is pretty funny, right? It's, this is such an early picture of the church that they do not even realize what the death of Jesus means for the temple. They're still going and sacrificing, Right? No one's written Hebrews yet. Right? This, is, this is kind of day one. And so there were, all of this will have to be worked out, but the point is they're sharing in worship together. 
They think it's important to gather around and direct their affection toward God together. In verse uh, 46 as well, they share meals together. Right? There's a coming together to spend time and to engage one another. And they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all uh, the people. Which is, again, particularly odd. This is such a brief moment in the history of the church. Remember, it says they have favor with all the people. How can that be? The people just killed their leader. And apparently, they, there's a window in which everyone thinks, well, we cut the head off the snake. They won't bother us anymore. And suddenly the group goes from 120 to 3,000. And as soon as we start next week in chapter 3, right, the religious leaders are arresting Peter. Right? This group is getting too big. They're exercising too much influence. And persecution will result. And the story will change. But you have this small window of the people coming together, praising God together, sharing life together, and as a result, have finding favor with the community in which they exist. Uh, and overall, I think you should take this, you know, not as a manual, but as a picture of what community life in the Spirit looks like. Right? An intentional, radical, volunteering sharing of life together and engaging one another. Now, you might seem that that is just a bit uh, intimate or asks just a bit much. And yet, before you make a decision on how willing you are to engage sharing, right, consider, consider the benefit that is held out here, even in the picture itself. We talked at the beginning about the profound growth and sense of loneliness that people have. I don't think loneliness was a strong characteristic in the early church because they're constantly overlapping in relationship and engaging one another toward a common purpose. We talked at the beginning about materialism. And here we see a people radically free from finding their identity or significance in their possessions or even free from, I have to ensure the future of my family and have to have X number of dollars to do so. Right? There's a, a radical provision for those who are in need, a willingness to give generously. Now, we have to be very honest. As Western capitalists, that does not sit well with us. We have earned what we have. And I've worked, you know, you think a person thinks to themselves, I've done, I've worked hard. I went right to school. I did two degrees. I worked 60 hours a week. And you want me to share with this person who spent their 20s bumbling around and now can't pull things together. I don't want to be generous toward them because they don't deserve my generosity. Well, that's, that's a very American thing to say, but it's not a very gospel thing to say. You realize how antithetical it is to say, to the gospel to say, well, I'm not going to be generous in this way because this person doesn't deserve my generosity. When you turn around and come to church on Sunday and confess, I'm so grateful that God was generous toward me when I didn't deserve his generosity and rescued me in my sin and depravity, right? So I want to talk about cacophony, a dissonance of beliefs and identities. Now, again, it's terribly complicated. I'm not going to pretend otherwise to work all that out. But the question I think at hand is, is even as you wrestle, um, what does it mean to be generous? Is in being generous, is there a freedom from being trapped and a prisoner and a slave of materialism, right? And giving away more freely, do I suddenly find liberty? 
You know, there are a few phrases that stick with me throughout life, and I'm sure most of you are the same way, where you're just in a certain place and a certain time, and somebody said something, and it clicked, and you have remembered it all your years. And I, I was young when I heard this. I don't know, maybe middle school or high school. But there was a guy in the church I really respected, and he was just, it was an, he was having a conversation with another person. I was just listening. He said, what most people don't realize is the more you own, the more complicated your life is. He says, the more you own, the more you have to take care of, the more you have to manage, the more you have to fix, the more you have to take a mental inventory of what you possess, and it's exhausting. And just by the grace of God and Spirit, that, when I heard that, I said, that's right. Maybe because I already had too much junk and was already too, too distracted by it, but I thought, that makes complete sense. Right? That's just empirically logical, that the more things I possess, the more complicated my life is. If I don't want a life to be unduly complicated or unduly materialistic, then I don't want as many things. Right? And so we see that there's a sense of freedom in moving away from materialism. And then, of course, there's a great symphony here as opposed to cacophony, right? in which we're distributed over 10 different communities with 10 different agendas and 10 different gods, we see here a small community that is absolutely oriented around one particular mission that's informed by one particular king. And you definitely get the impression that things that didn't fall into that mission informed by that king were kicked to the curb. Maybe you need to do some kicking to the curb, right, of things that compete, the agenda and the mission of the king himself. And so a question, you know, the question that we started with, you know, what does it mean to Repent. Right. What shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. What does it mean for you to repent? Are there ways in which you have not engaged relationships in a way that would actually b- build you up relationally and allow you to share life together? In what ways have you been overly materialistic? And as a result, you're not generous at all. You're more concerned with what you can acquire. And in what ways do you experience cacophony? And you long for a symphony to your life, but you know that it won't actually come until you give up some of those things that are distracting you. I'll tell you where I see most of the world headed today. And it was captured beautifully in a stunning journalistic piece um, on a company called Devumi. You may have seen it. It came out this week uh, that uh, many celebrities, sports stars, uh, celebrity chefs, uh, public figures, politicians who have these enormous followings on Facebook and Twitter have been buying followers through a company called Devumi. And Devumi was supposed to provide for you, you know, however much you wanted to pay, we will provide this many followers. And these people say, well, my identity is bound up in how many people are attached to my social media accounts and how many likes I get and how many retweets I receive. And so I have, to, I have to push this number up. And so they would buy all these identities, which as it came out this week and they were asked for comment, it became incredibly awkward, right? Uh, oh, my, my manager did that without my knowledge, even though you know, I've, my personal email account has been used eight times over the last three years to buy all of these identities. Now, the really funny part of the story is that it came out that uh, lots of these you know, you're supposed to be uh, buying authentic followers, real human beings. But most, most of them, or many of them, are actually uh, are stolen identities that have been created into bots and are just retweeting things um, as, a, as a mechanism of their coding. 
to, pump, to push all of these numbers up. So the journalist went and said, well, let's talk to this company and see what's really going on. So they went to their offices in Manhattan, and there was no office. Right? The building, their address, their corporate address is, uh, is vacant. And said so that, well, that's odd. So they went, they tra- somehow they did some very impressive investigative journalism and ended up in, uh, in a, a small apartment above a taco shop in Miami, Florida, in which the CEO, right, whose resume includes a master's degree in computer software engineering, something from Princeton, and a PhD from MIT in a degree that doesn't even exist, it was realized to not have his entire, his entire identity is fake. Uh, the corporate identity is fake, and this is what all these people have been buying into, which led to a lot of embarrassment this week. But uh, the, the observation that I'd like to point out to you were the people, most people weren't willing to comment, right? No comment, not interested. But a few said, you know, I'm so embarrassed. And I, I think moving forward, I'm going to pursue friends who actually know me or I'd like to actually have relationships with the people who follow me. Um, and you saw some accounts being shut down. But I think, is that not the future down one road for a crooked generation? My identity will be, built, will be established by likes and retweets. And if I have to establish that artificially, so be it. What is going to be the level of uh, loneliness and materialism and cacophony for people who walk down that road? Is there a better road to walk down? Of course there is. It's what Peter invites you to, right, based on the death and resurrection of Jesus today. And you need to realize that this is, this is very much at the heart of why we have organized the mission of Rockwell Prez around cross, community, and cultivate. Right? We say that cross is our notion of being committed to the apostles' teaching. Right? As we gather and worship and, and hear the word expounded through a sermon, or we gather in our classes and hear the word taught, we are seeking to orient our lives according to the apostles' teaching. Well, where do we go to actually you know, share meals together and share life together and share in prayers together in a way in which our lives overlap? Well, that's why we have community groups. Right? And then where do I go to really press into the word and to be held accountable and have an even deeper level of relationship? Well, that happens in cultivate groups. Now, we just ran those out this year, and you know what? We've had lots of road bumps. Lots of aspects that have been a little bit frustrating. Lots of things that need to be retooled. So much so that we've actually reoriented a little bit of my, uh, my attention and Pastor Zach's attention so that Pastor Zach can, can focus on uh, fixing some of those uh, weaker aspects and making them stronger. Right? But my invitation to you is the invitation that Luke is making to all of us and giving us this description of what it means to be a community informed by the death and resurrection of Jesus And that is, do you really want to experience Jesus? Unequivocally, that means that you are willing to share life together. To be radically uh, vulnerable, to be radically generous, to engage one another. And walking down that road, this is the promise that I hold out to you. An end to loneliness, an end to idolatries like materialism, and a symphony that does what? How does our passage end? The community is characterized by joy and gladness of heart. That's the symphony of being unified to Christ that trumps the cacophony of the crooked way and the crooked generation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for uh, being king and bringing all things under your authority and reign. 
We ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we ignore your authority and would go the way of the crooked generation and would not be serious about repenting. Would you call us to a life that is beautiful and winsome and healing in community? And would you help us as a result of that then to, to be a community that is in and of itself a testimony of your grace uh, to the community in which we exist, to the Lake Ray Hubbard area? We pray that you would forge us into this. And yes, we go kicking and screaming many times. But as a loving Father, you know what is best for us. And pray that you would, you would turn our heads and open our hearts and help us to pursue the life that you offer as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. We confess that he is indeed Lord in Christ this morning and pray that you would nourish us at his table. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.